Good morning. Welcome to Harvest. Uh, we're so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. My name is Pastor Micah, and uh, if you're a visitor or a guest with us today, we're especially glad that you're here. If we can help you, serve you in any way, please let us know that today. We'd love to do that. Um, so we're going to dive into God's Word this morning. So if you've got a Bible on you, go ahead and grab that. And we're actually going to be in Luke chapter 7. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one somewhere there on the floor around you. You can grab one of those from underneath the chairs and follow along that way if you like. Um, and today we're starting a brand new series uh, that I'm really, really excited about. I actually first heard this series and this kind of set of ideas uh, from Pastor James McDonald in Chicago, and he was gracious enough to give me permission to share it with you over the next couple weeks. And so just really excited uh, for these things. I believe what we're going to hear starting today over the next three weeks, if we can grab a hold of these concepts, if we can grab a hold of these things as a church, they will make us exponentially more honoring to God as a church. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want, amen? amen? We want to be honoring to the Lord in all that we do. And uh, so this series is called This Is What We Do. And uh, we're going to look at three different things that the church has to be if the church is going to be what God wants it to be. Okay? Um, so this next three weeks, this series, I'm going to be honest with you to start with here, it's it's going to kind of go against the grain of our culture in a lot of ways. And, and some people would say, well, Michael, why, why would you do that? Why would you stir the pot, if you will? Why would you push against culture? Because here's the issue. Oftentimes, the things that our culture wants are the opposite of the things that God wants. And for us as a church, we want what he wants. And there was, a, there was a pastor named Francis Schaefer. He was a pastor, he was a theologian, a writer, just well, really one of the greatest uh, Christian minds over the last century. Um, and, and one time he was writing, he wrote this. He said, uh, tell me what the world is saying today, and I will tell you what the church will be saying in seven years. That's not a good thing. <laughs> I think we've seen the evidence of this. Our culture for a long time has been a man-centered culture, right? It's about me about what I want, it's about what makes me happy, it's about what my needs are and making sure that I'm taken care of. And, and the church has bought into that over the last several uh, generations, if you will, and we have seen it produce a whole generation of churches that are centered on me, meeting my needs, giving me what I want, and programmed to make me happy. Here at Harvest, we say that we're a vertical church. What that means is that we believe that church isn't about me, that church is about him. I don't come here so that God can serve me and meet my needs, and I come here so that I can serve and worship him, right? Church is about God. Say that with me. Church is about God, right? That's why we're here. And this series, I believe, is going to help us do that better and press into that Oftentimes, as humans, we can get caught up in my thing, right? We all have our things, right? Like, you have your things, I have my things. Like, we're not here uh, all week in church doing this, right? We go to jobs, we have families, we have work, we have, you know, retirement to plan for, we have activities that we're involved in, we have all this stuff that's our thing, my thing, right? And we do a lot here at Harvest to help you take your thing and align it in a way that honors God, do we not? You get a lot of that here on Sundays? Helping you learn how to take your thing and align it with God's thing, right? That's what we're doing. We do that a lot, but for the next three weeks, I don't wanna talk about your thing. I don't wanna talk about my thing. 
I wanna talk about something that's so much bigger. I wanna talk about our thing, collectively, as a church, our thing, who we are as the people of God, okay? So, with that in mind, um, you hear me preach a lot about what we believe. You hear me preach a lot about who we are. Those are all good, we need that. We talk about the doctrine and the four pillars. We need that foundation. But the foundation is nothing if we don't know what to do with it. So we're gonna talk about our thing for the next three weeks and more specifically, how we do our thing together. How we apply all that God is teaching us and growing us in through his word. What's it look like in our actions? What's it look like in the way that we live it out? Have you ever been to a, a party and, and maybe there's, that, there's, this, there's a couple there that, you know, like maybe they're like just started dating or they're engaged, newly engaged, or maybe newlyweds, and like they are just all over each other. Like nobody else is even in the room. Have you, have you seen, I know you've never been that couple, but have you seen that couple, right? Okay. We, we, were, at, we were at the Matt Carney concert earlier this week in, in the section right in front of us, man. There was this couple, I don't know what their status was, but they didn't think anybody else was there. I'll just tell you that. Okay, you with me? You tracking with me? All right. Like it was all about them and they were just, that was their thing going on. Sometimes that's the risky part about vertical church. Sometimes we can get so focused on it's God, it's God, it's God. It's just me and God, me and God, the relationship here, the relationship here, that we forget that yes, that's the most important relationship. But if we're gonna be following God and we're gonna be experiencing his love and we're gonna be loving him back, we also have to love the people that God loves, right? It can't just be here all the time. That's gotta flow out into the horizontal as well. So we don't, we don't wanna be that couple as a church, right? We, we want to be inviting others in. And so, so today, or the next few weeks, we're gonna talk about three statements. And here's the first statement that we're gonna dig into today. This is what we do. We welcome without judgment. We welcome without judgment. Now, that is what our church should be, okay? That no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you think or feel, no matter, no matter what you might be stuck in right now, that you are welcome here without judgment. So if that's gonna be true of us, then we kinda of have to understand what we're talking about, right? We have, to, we have to understand, what do we mean when we say welcome without judgment? Let's define some terms here. I know, like, all right, Mike, I get to the Bible already. Okay, we're gonna get there, I know. This is like a long, long intro for me. We're not in the scriptures yet, but it's coming, I promise. Stay with me, okay? Welcome without judgment. What's that mean? Let's define welcome, first of all. Welcome means this, to rec- receiving appreciatively the presence of another and communicating that to them. Receiving appreciatively the presence of another person and then communicating that to them. We all want that, right? Like when you come in to church or when you come into home or work or wherever you're at, like you want to feel welcomed. You want people to welcome you, don't you? Right? We want that. We want that for others. So the welcome part, I think that's a pretty easy one. But then what about the judgment part? Without judgment. What do we mean when we say without judgment? Well, here's the definition I want us to use today for judgment as we walk into this. Judgment is the negative assessment of another person based on a superficial sense of superiority. The negative assessment of another person based on a superficial sense of superiority. It's that snap decision. It's that as soon as they walk in, you look at them and you 
measure them up based on how they look or how they walk or what they're wearing or maybe how they talk or things they've said or done in the past and you you put them in a box you you measure them up and you decide who they are and what they're about before you really get to know what's going on right and and honestly ironically enough that measurement that we give them is almost always a reflection of how we think about ourselves right we're measuring them against me what I want, what I think, what I, right? Welcome without judgment is what we're talking about today. Judgment like that. Judgment is death to us as a church. If our church is a place like that, if that's who we are, this thing will not last. Okay? So with all of that, Let's get into the text this morning, Luke chapter 7. But we actually can't start in chapter 7 because as I've taught you before, you can't just open the Bible up and just start jumping in anywhere, right? Like you have to know what's going on in the story. You have to have a little bit of context around that. So I'm just going to walk you through a little bit here prior to chapter 7 and the story we're going to today. So look at, go one chapter back, Luke chapter 6. Jesus here is talking to his disciples. He's teaching them some things. And he says this in verse, chapter 6, 37. He says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Our, our, our world loves that verse, don't they? You, you've even heard non-Christians quote that one, right? Like, they're like, it says, not judge, right? You're not supposed to judge. And we're we're going to get into that in a second. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus' point here is this. I will be judged as I have judged others. In the same way, in the same manner, with the same heart that I have judged others is the way that I am going to receive judgment myself. And that's, if we're being honest, that's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? Right? Because we've all been there. We've all done that, right? The judgment thing. You've judged someone too harshly. You've made that snap decision. I know I have. Right? And Jesus warned, like, if, you, if that's who you are, if that's how it goes, watch out. Right? If, if you're making those superficial assessments based on a false sense of superiority, that's going to be bad news for you later. Then he goes on in the next section and he talks about knowing someone by their fruit, which is kind of interesting because if you're knowing someone by the fruit of their life, that's kind of like judging. Right? Are you trying to so you're like, okay, oh, you just said be careful, and now you're saying we're supposed to. So there's some things we're supposed to judge, some things maybe we're not supposed to judge. We'll try to sort all that out here in a moment. Then he goes into the miracles and he hits him with a couple miracles here. The centurion comes up and he's like, hey, will you heal my servant? He's like, yeah, I'll come. He's like, no, no, you don't got to come. Just say the words. I know he'll be healed. He's like, man, dude, this dude's got some faith right here. Okay, he's healed. Boom, we're done. Going on to the next thing, gets to the widow. Son's not well. Heals the son, brings the widow's son back to life, right? All this stuff is going on. And then out of the nowhere, these guys come up and start talking to him about John the Baptist. Like they start trying, like Jesus just like did like some crazy stuff and they're all walking up like, hey, I got some questions for you about John the Baptist. And Jesus is like, what, why are we even talking? Like I don't even, what is going on? So they start having this dialogue about John the Baptist and then it gets to verse, look at verse seven, uh, chapter seven, verse 31. And look what Jesus says to him. He says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> you ever read the Bible and think that? Like, what, what is that? Thankfully, Jesus explains it for us. Keep reading. 
For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Here's Jesus' point. He's like, listen, people are never satisfied. You ever felt that way? Like, no matter what you do, no matter how you spend it, no matter, like, there's never, like, John the Baptist came, like, he had this really strict life, and he did everything by the book, and was, like, super conservative, and you, like, thought he was crazy, and then I come in, and I'm ready, ready to party with you, and come to your dinners, and do the drink, like, and you call me a, a drunkard, like, what do you want? <laughs> like, people are never satisfied, there's always somebody wanting to judge something, always got an opinion, and then we get to the story that we're going to look at today. Chapter 7, verse 36 is where we're going to start off. Jesus is going to this dinner party. Here's the first thing I want you to see in this passage. Point number one this morning, Jesus welcomes all who come to him. Jesus welcomes all who come to him. So verse 36 starts off like this. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went. Now let's just pause there for a second. The Pharisees... If you've ever read the New Testament at all, I think you've probably caught on to this. Like the Pharisees, these guys were like the worst, right? Like they were the religious, legalistic, harsh, prideful, in your face, you're not good enough, like just real jerks a lot of times, right? Jesus had some really not nice things to say about them, okay? He called them blind guides. He's like, you don't even know where you're going, but yet you're trying to tell everybody else what to do, right? And he's like, he called them whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but inside you're just full of death, was his point. And he said, woe to you Pharisees, like seven times he says, woe to you Pharisees, which means like, you better watch out because something bad's coming if you stay on this road. He wasn't a real big fan of the Pharisees, all right? So like, so I'm just going to, you're going to have to help me out today. So when we read the Pharisees, like you gotta, we need like a sound effect right there, you know what you think? Like, can you give me like a good boo? Like, boo okay, all right, whoa, 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 let me read it again, let me try again, let's see if you can do it. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees, okay, that's good, that's good, perfect, all right, asked him to eat with him, and he went. What? The Pharisees? The guys that you just called out? Like, you're going to go to his house to eat? Like, what is, what is Jesus doing here, right? He despised their self-religious, self-righteous system but he still loved them, right? He hated their behavior. He hated what they did to other people. He hated how they treated others, but he still loved them because Jesus loves everyone. So he goes to this guy's house, and it says, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. Yeah, there you go. Keep coming. All right. All right. And so notice the Pharisee doesn't just invite him anywhere. He invites him to his house. He didn't invite him to Starbucks or Denny's or Culver's or something like that. He's like, he invited him to his house. And just like today, that was kind of a big deal back then. Like, you don't just invite anybody to your house, right? Like, when you invite somebody to your house, that's something personal. It's something special. It's a big big deal. Like, I I know lots of you in here today, right? I would say that we're friends, but I haven't been to your house before, right? Are you you tracking with me? Like, like, you know... um, Rick, you know, we're good friends. Like, we, we've, we've had lots of meetings and stuff, but I've, I've never been to your house. You've never, you've never invited me to your house, Rick. Um, but, but if you did, but if you did, I would come. I would totally come. Like, you know, if we were free, like, 
like later today, we're, well, we would totally come to your house, Rick. Um, all right, so that's super awkward, isn't it? It's super awkward because you don't just invite yourself to somebody's house, right? Like that's, it's personal, it's a big deal. And so this, this Pharisee here, he, he invited Jesus to come to his house. And it says that Jesus went and he reclined at table. Okay, so let's just talk about that for a second. In the ancient Near East, during this time, this was the custom of the day. They didn't have chairs. They had tables that were like really low to the ground, like maybe just a few inches off the ground. And when they would dine together, they would come and they would kind of recline. They would lay on the floor basically with some, with some pillows next to the thing. And they would kind of put their, their arm or their elbow on the pillows. And they would kind of like lean on their arm like this with their head towards the table to eat. And their feet would kind of be pointed out away from the table. Okay, that's a good call, right? Like feet away from the table, we go on that. Okay, so he would lay down and, and that was just kind of the thing. So I, I won't lay at your table, Rick, when, we, when I come over, okay? So, so he said, he reclined at the table and, and behold, anytime you see behold in the Bible, that's like, check this out. Like you're not gonna believe what's gonna happen right here, okay? Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. All right, so we've got a new character now, right? The woman of the city. And that wasn't her address, by the way. It wasn't like the woman from Kirkwood or the woman from Afton, right? Like, it's a, it's a descriptor. And just to make sure you know exactly what they're meaning, he goes on, who was a sinner. Most theologians believe that most likely she was a prostitute in the city. She was a woman of the city. And it says here that when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, there you go, good, okay, so she learned it, meaning she wasn't what? Invited. You tracking? She didn't get an invitation to the party. Surprise, surprise. The woman of the city, the big sinner, didn't get invited to the super religious guy's house. Anybody shocked about that? Right? Okay. So she learns, hey, Jesus is going to be at this guy's house. And she makes a really, really bold move, a desperate move, if you will. She just shows up. She just crashes the party, man, because she needs to see Jesus. And what you're going to see is, although she totally broke all social protocols, she comes in, we're going to see in just a second, that Jesus welcomes her fully. Right? Like he doesn't cast her aside. He doesn't, he doesn't chastise her in any way. He welcomes her fully. As Christians, and especially as a pastor, or if you've been in church for a while, you've been following Jesus for a while, sometimes we can get ourselves to a place where we're kind of insulated and isolated from people who are different than us. Have you noticed that? And oftentimes, the church can be a very scary place for some people because they think that their past, that their sin, that their lifestyle, that whatever it is that they're walking in, that, that, that it's so graphic, that it's so out there that they can't come in, that it's not a safe place for them. Even though maybe they've been forgiven. I was faced with this as a pastor uh, one time. There was an individual who started attending our church who was coming for a period of time, started getting involved and was being very faithful and it came to my attention that they had a, a sin in fact, a crime in their life previously um, that was pretty, pretty big deal. 
And uh, so I sat down with them and I asked them about it and they admitted yes, they did. And they hadn't told me about it when they first met with me because they were afraid that our church wouldn't accept them, that they couldn't keep coming, that this wouldn't be a safe place for them if people knew, right? They would be an outcast. They wouldn't be allowed to come. And as we started talking through that, um, I found out that that they'd never been a part of a church family because they had this in their past and they didn't know if they could get in anywhere, if it would be okay. And the stigma and the shame that was attached to that sin, even though they had been forgiven and they got saved and were forgiven after all this happened, well after. But that stigma and that shame of that sin was still holding on to their life and their heart and they were afraid that they couldn't come in. They couldn't be Part. And as we talked, they told me how desperately they wanted to be a part of a church family, how they wanted to be a part of the community so they could grow in Christ with other people and without being labeled based on their past. Right? So that led to many weeks of us having conversations and talking through things and, and learning how to step into this new situation with grace and love. Because to be honest, as a pastor, I had never been down this road. I'd never dealt with this type of thing in the church before, and they had never learned how to step into a church and be honest about who they are without feeling that shame and that judgment. And so it took us some time to kind of figure out how this was going to play out and for us to learn how to trust one another in this. But here's, here's what I, I said to them along the way. I said, listen, I want you here, and God wants you here. Not only so that you can grow in Christ, but also so that our church can grow in learning how to love and show grace and forgiveness in situations just like this. Thankfully, God worked mightily on both sides of that, and the person continued to attend and even serve, got involved in a small group, started growing in relationship with other believers, and is continuing to walk in the Lord. What an awesome story, right? Of how God's love, God's mercy can take any of us and bring us to that place of forgiveness and welcome without judgment. Sometimes we have to press past our fears and our insecurities and step outside of our bubble in order to welcome others in Jesus' name. And we have to be careful that we don't label people based on their sin. We do this too often. And none of us want that. We don't want to be labeled by our sin, right? Like, we, we call someone a homosexual, or we call someone an adulterer or a thief. We, we wouldn't want that. Like, hi, I'm liar. How are you? Right? Or, hi, I'm glutton. Nice to meet you. I'm a prideful jerk. Uh, we, nobody wants to be labeled by their sin, right? Like, nobody wants that. And we shouldn't do that. Because the reality is that we are all sinners here at Harvest. None of us are outside of that, myself included. Yet, everyone is welcome here. There is no person who looks wrong for Harvest. There's no person who has the wrong story. There's, there's no person who has the wrong stuff, or the wrong race, or the wrong background or the wrong political party, or there's no person who is wrong for here. Are you hearing me this morning? Because the ground is level 
at the foot of the cross. We all approach him at the same place. So to help us apply this, I have two verses I want to share with you real quickly. The first one is Proverbs 3, 7. It starts off like this. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's all we need right there. That's enough to chew on for a while. Right? Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't naturally assume that your opinion is always right. Don't, don't think that you will always have the upper hand. Don't superficially assess that your opinion is better than someone else's. And then in the New Testament, Paul says this in Philippians 2, 3. He says, esteem others better than yourself. Paul says that, right after that, he says that that is the mind of Christ. Esteeming others better than myself. That's what Jesus did. God in the flesh. Thought, well, they, they, they must be better than me. Obviously, they, they, they're doing something different than the way I would do it. But that's okay. They, they, must, they must be better than me. That's okay. They don't look the same way the people look in my house or on my block, but they must be better than me. That's okay. They cut you off in traffic. Well, obviously, you're better than me. Of course you should be in front, right? Why why was I in front of you in the first place? I'm glad you corrected that. Thank you very much, right? Like, some of you are like, yeah, that's never going to happen. But this is the heart that Jesus calls us to. others better than ourselves. That's the first step in welcoming people. We welcome without hasty, superficial assessments of our own superiority that doesn't square with the facts. We welcome without hasty, superficial assessments of our own superiority that doesn't square with the facts. We're all sinners, man. Don't, don't think you got the upper hand. So that's the first thing. Jesus welcomes all who come to him. Here's the second major point this morning. Religious hypocrites offer only selective welcome with judgment. Religious hypocrites offer only selective welcome with judgment. So the story goes on here. Look at, look at verse thirty. So this woman comes in, she's got this alabaster flask of ointment, right? And it says that she was standing behind him at his feet. So this woman of the city comes in with this flask of ointment. Now this was a very rare and expensive gift, okay? Like you didn't use this on just anything. This is something you saved for a very special occasion. And and the the ointment was actually used to soothe the feet. Because in this day and age, they, they pretty much walked everywhere, and they didn't have, you know, Nikes like us. So they had, like, just sandals, and so their feet would get dusty and dirty and dry and cracked, and, and just, it would just hurt to walk sometimes. And so, so this ointment was going to help his feet. And so she comes in, planning to put this ointment on Jesus' feet, but there was a problem. The Pharisee hadn't washed his feet yet. See, it was customary when you had people into your house that you would either provide them with water to wash their feet before dinner, or you would even have a servant come in and wash their feet for them. Right? For some reason, the Pharisee missed that. He didn't do it. So the woman comes in, and she's standing at his feet, prepared to anoint his feet with his ointment, but they're all dirty. She didn't bring a water or a towel. She, didn't, she assumed they'd already be clean. 
And it says, standing behind him at his feet in this humble position, ashamed of her sin, not saying anything, just coming in and humbly standing at his feet, it says she starts weeping. Like uncontrollable crying. I'm talking about like a few little tears. I'm talking about like weeping so much that the water is just gushing out of her eyes and it's falling on Jesus' feet so much that it wet his feet and then with her tears and then she wiped them with her hair. She's crying so profusely that she has enough water to wash all the dirt off of Jesus' feet. And in the absence of having a towel, she grabs her hair and lets it down and wipes it off with her hair. She was able to get his feet so clean that she then could lean down and kiss his feet. Some of you are like, I don't care how clean they are, that ain't happening. But she did, and it was, it was an act of worship, an act of humility. And then it says that she anointed them with the ointment. She finally was able to give her gift of love. Now, imagine being one of the guys seated or laying at the table at this point. This is super awkward, right? Like, the woman comes in, she's uninvited, she starts, like, crying profusely, she's wiping stuff with her hair and kissing feet. Like, this is a weird, awkward situation at this point. Are you with me? And then it goes on. Look at the verse. It says, Now when the Pharisee who had, who had invited him saw this, so just imagine the Pharisee, like, this is his house, right? Can you imagine his face right now? He's like, are you serious? Or like, he is perturbed, he is upset, like, he is like, what is going on? Shocked. She wasn't invited. This wasn't part of the plan. This wasn't part of the dinner plans. Like, when you invite somebody over your house, you make plans, right? Like, you plan out the menu, and you have the, you know, the little sandwiches, and the desserts, and the great appetizers, and and all, all the good food, and like, I love those, those bacon-wrapped Smokies. You know what I'm talking about? Those appetizers, the bacon-wrapped Smokies, man, those are my jam right there. Just so you know, when I come over, those, those are my jam. Do you know how to make those? You can Google it. You can Google it. Okay, so like, that is the stuff right there, okay? So he's got all these plans, and she was not part of the plan, right? So the Pharisee gets all upset, and he totally misses the point. He misses the whole moment. It says that he said to himself, we do that, don't we? We talk to ourselves? You talk to yourself? Yes, you do. Come on. We talk to ourselves more than anybody else talks to us. And sometimes we say some really stupid stuff to ourselves, right? You're like, just thankful that I had the filter enough not to say it out loud, but I'm still saying it to myself, right? So he's talking to himself and he says, look at what he says. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. What? What? And there's so much wrong with that statement. I, I don't even have time to unpack all of that. But here's what I want you to see for today. Here's, what, here's what's interesting about this. He jumps to judgment, but notice who he judges. He doesn't judge himself, right, for like missing the whole foot washing thing or for like not having better security at the party to keep the crazy women out, right? Like, he doesn't judge himself. He doesn't even judge the sinful woman who's jumped in when she wasn't invited and is making a scene in the middle of the party. No, no, he judges Jesus. And he judges him for loving the woman, right? 
He says, if this guy was really a prophet, if he really knew who she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. He wouldn't let this go on. Her sin and Jesus' reaction to it drives this guy to judge others rather than to reflect on the sin in his own heart. You see that? When we see it, what's our reaction? Do we jump to judge them, or does that turn as a mirror to us to help us see the brokenness inside ourselves? Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All of us have sin that we can be repentant of. Right after, Courtney and I got married, you know, right out of college, and most of our friends did the same from college, you know, Christian school, and that's what you do. You get married. So, um, so anyways, they, so they had lots of, lots of weddings we went to and all this kind of stuff, and we knew all these couples, and we were shocked that, like, within the first three or four years of, of this, how many of our friends, Christians, people who knew Jesus, that we knew, that we believed were truly followers of Christ, how many of them ended up having affairs? And then that led to divorce and just like, like what? Like, what, what happened? Like, how, how, could, how could they do that? I, I can't even imagine how that got to that point, especially in such a short amount of time. Like, what is... It's a very dangerous place to be. Thankfully, God was able to get a hold of our hearts in that and show us a very important lesson. That no matter what the sin is, none of us are exempt. None of us are exempt from that. That could be any one of us if we allow Satan to get a foothold in our life and to lead us into temptation in that way. We all have the potential to fall that's why it's so important that we're vigilant in guarding our hearts and our minds and our relationships. When we get to the place where we're like, I would never do that, or that, that could never happen to us, that is one of the most dangerous places you can be. With a heart like that, you are setting yourself up for a fall. When we see others in sin, when we see others fall, our response should be this. I am that man. I am that woman. That's me. What I'm seeing here, that's me. Maybe not the same, it, it, the exact same sin, but maybe my sin is different than their sin, but I'm in sin just like they're in sin. Right? It's not I'm up here and they're down here. Or like, it's not a comparison thing. It's that's me. That's me too, man. Because all of our sin is equally offensive to a holy God, no matter what it is. We don't judge because our sin may be different in specifics, but is the same in principle. The reason we don't judge other people in their sin is because my sin may be different in the specifics of what happened and how I did what and whatever, but it's the same. In principle, it's sin against a holy God. So that should turn that mirror right back to me. Jesus welcomes all who come to him. 
Religious hypocrites welcome only some people and even then with judgment. And then the last thing this morning, point number three, forgiven sinners are broken over their own need for Christ's welcome. Forgiven sinners are broken over their own need for Christ's welcome. Look at verse 40. Jesus turns to the Pharisees. He's named Simon, we find out. And he tells them this story. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender who had two debtors, one owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And when he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus tells him this story, right? He says, there's this money lender, he's got two debtors, one owes 50 denarii, which was about two months wages, okay? One owed 500 denarii, which was about two years worth of wages. And the lender canceled both. Jesus says, who's going to love him more? And Simon's like, well, obviously, the guy who owed more money. And Jesus says, exactly. Exactly. And then notice it says he, says, turning to the woman. See the love and the compassion here in Jesus? He's still talking to Simon. He's not done with Simon yet. Simon's still going to get his, okay? But he's, he's turning to the woman, and he's looking at her, and he's giving her this, this moment of, of love and compassion. And it says, and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? What's he asking Simon there? And see, like, hey, did you notice the crazy woman who came in your party? Like, did you miss this happening over here? Obviously not, right? Like, nobody missed it. He said, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to ask. Are you blind? Can you even see what's going on? Is that what he's asking Simon here? No, no, no. He's saying, do you see this woman the way I see her? Do you really see her? Do you see her with my eyes? And then he goes into this little comparison here to make a point to Simon. He says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. It says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Much sin equals much love. Little sin equals little love. That's Jesus' point of the whole story. My sense of how much I have been forgiven by Jesus sets the thermometer of how much I'm going to judge others. When I see the depth and the gravity of my own sin, it doesn't leave me any room to want to judge somebody else. I got plenty of my own stuff to deal with. But when I think that I'm on top of the world and things are going good and I don't have any real major problems and me and Jesus are doing this thing, man, like, that's when I can get on that high horse. I should be more focused on my need for Jesus than anyone's else. Here's, here's something this morning for you. Every person, every person is either the Pharisee who thinks that they're better than Jesus or the sinful woman who knows they need his forgiveness. You're in one of two camps. You're either the Pharisee who thinks that you're better than Jesus and I don't need him and I don't need his forgiveness and I'm good, or you're the sinful woman who knows 
the depth of your sin and you know how much you need him. So I've been pounding this drum pretty hard this morning about that we're supposed to welcome without judgment, welcome without judgment, no judgment, no judgment, no judgment. And some of you, I know, have been Christians for a while. And you're like, Mike, I'm pretty sure there's some parts in there that talk about judging and that there's a place for that. There is. There is. There's some things that we are called to judge in certain arenas of life as Christians. There's a lot of things we're called not to. So rather than trying to explain all that nuance in just a few minutes this morning, Here's what I want to do. I want to give you the specific biblical examples of when we're not to judge. Okay? Quick list here for you. What does don't judge mean? Biblically, what does it mean when, to, when we're not, that we are not to judge in certain circumstances? Don't judge means this. Number one, never judge broadly. Never judge broadly. That's 1 Peter 4.17, which says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? He says, all right, you want to start, you want to do judgment, you want to start judgment? Start here. Start in the body of Christ. Not with outsiders, not with lost people, not with the world around us. Start here. Self-examine. Deal with your own sin first. Deal with your sin inside the church first. Don't judge broadly to everyone. Keep it narrow to the heart that God has given you. Second thing, never judge motives. This one is so important. This is where we miss it nine times out of ten, friends. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We do not have the ability to know the heart of another individual. We can get some clues. We can, we can try to discern it based on what they say or do. But in the end, we do not fully have the capacity to know exactly what's happening inside their heart. So we can't judge their motives. That's up to the Lord. Number three, don't judge means never judge quickly. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Don't judge too quickly because there's some things you don't know. There's some things that only God knows and one day he's going to reveal all of that. And you don't know every little detail and you don't know all the specifics. So be careful not to judge too quickly because you don't always know what you don't know. Lastly, number four, Never judge harshly. That's Luke 6, 38, which is the verse we started with, actually. Give, and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Don't judge harshly. That means you're going to be judged harshly. So we welcome without judgment. And then look how Jesus finishes the story. He turns to her and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. He just said that she had many sins, right? This, th think about how terrible the sin was in her life. Think about how many commandments she had broken. Think about how many ways she had rebelled against God, how many times she had done what she had done. 
I'm sure everyone around her thought that with all she has in her past, that that's unforgivable. Maybe even she thought it was unforgivable, that it was too much. It was too far. And Jesus says, you're forgiven. He says, it's over. He says, the slate has been wiped clean. Nothing left. That's not totally clean. He does a better job than I do. <laughs> this was supposed to be an Etch-a-Sketch, but we couldn't get it to work right. Okay. This is what he says to her. All of that that you had going on, it's gone. It's clean. You're forgiven. And then he says this. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's how Jesus welcomes people. That's how we as a church need to welcome people. Come, be forgiven, and you can live in peace with the Son of God. Are we like Jesus, welcoming without judgment all who come to our church? That's the big question for us. Let me just say, overall, I think that we have a very welcoming church. I think we do. I hear that over and over again from people who visit. But being nice and greeting someone as they walk in isn't quite what we're talking about. It's more than that. Are we continuing to be welcoming when we learn who someone is, when we start to see their life, when we start to walk beside them? Welcome without judgment. If I can narrow it all down today to one thing, here's the last statement. We become the arrogant, judgmental Pharisee when we forget that we are the sinful woman. That's what happens. When we start to lose that welcome and we start to lean towards judgment, it's because we forget that we too are the sinful woman. And it puts us in the place of the arrogant judgmental Pharisee. Romans 3.23, many of you know this verse, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. All of us are in that category. This church is a church full of sinners. That was a great place for an amen. You missed it. This church is a place full of sinners. It is. None of us are above that. But yet we've been welcomed by Jesus. We've been forgiven by Jesus. We must extend that same welcome to others. Again, I'll say it, no matter what your background is, you are welcome here. No matter what your past holds, you're welcome here. No matter what your sexual orientation is, you're welcome here. No matter what your political party is, no matter how much money you have, no matter what your race is, you're welcome here. Jesus says you're welcome here. No matter what you look like, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing right now, you're welcome here. We will be a church that welcomes without judgment. This is what we do. We stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, thank you for the way that you have welcomed us. 
Thank you, Lord, for pulling us in close, even when we were enemies, even when we were far from you, Lord, far from what you've called us to be. Thank you that you've forgiven and redeemed sinners like us. Lord, we confess that we are often guilty. We're guilty of judging others instead of welcoming them into the grace as you have welcomed us. Forgive us, Father. Change our hearts. Change our hearts from hearts of judgment to hearts of welcome. Lord, we know that we're dependent on you. We're dependent on your grace this morning. Lord, just shower us with the glory of your grace in this place today that we might respond in turn. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.